passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning we are continuing our way through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, this morning we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 14. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to that chapter as we begin working our way through it. And as you're turning to 2 Samuel 14, let me just begin with a, a bit of a confession. This chapter confuses me. It, it, it's confusing. Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that this chapter is hard to understand. The stories in it are relatively straightforward. Joab tricks David into bringing his son Absalom back, and then Absalom forces his way back into the king's court at the end of the chapter. Now, the story that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 14 is relatively easy to understand, but what's harder to understand is why God put this passage in the Bible. What is God's intention in this passage? And at least I felt a little better this week as I was studying this, uh, realizing I'm in good company. And the number of pastors and scholars that I read pointed out, hey, I have no idea really to do, what to do with this passage. So... We're not alone in that regard. See, when we read this passage, our, our goal isn't just the retelling of history, while that is true, but because we believe that God's word is living and active, we should ask ourselves, what specifically is God saying through this passage to his people? Every week as I'm preparing a sermon, I spend time looking at what is the author's intended meaning? What is God's intended meaning in this story? I mean, there's lots of things that we can learn from this, lots of principles we can learn from it, but, but those, are, those are tangents. What's the, what's the main thing that God is trying to teach us through this text? And honestly, that's our aim this morning, is to discover that with God's help. As we jump into this text, to hear God speak, to understand why he inspired this chapter of scripture. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This morning's chapter, as I mentioned, is relatively easy to follow. Just like last week, it's two stories, or I'm going to call them schemes, because that's what they are. It's two schemes, first from Joab and then second from Absalom. We're going to look at each this morning and then consider what the spirit of the Lord Jesus is saying to his church. Would you pray with me once more? Father, as we approach your word, we do ask that you would speak to us, that you would help us to hear from you, not just so we can un understand this passage intellectually, but that we might be led to wholehearted worship. We ask for your help in applying this passage to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let me take 30 seconds to just kind of remind us of where this story falls this morning. We turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Remember what has just taken place in 2 Samuel. In a very real sense, we're still feeling the aftershock of what has been written to this point. The aftershock of David's adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Uriah in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And to this point, there has been um, several years that have passed since those events, but the fallout continues to this moment. One thing that's striking, I think, as I, I look at 2 Samuel as a whole, is that the, the kingdom of David 
faces a whole lot more trouble from the inside, from David's own family. And that's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. A son raping his sister, a brother murdering his brother. Next week, starting next week, and then later on, we'll see multiple coups from his different sons trying to seize the throne. There's a lot of trouble that faces David from inside his family, far more than David ever experienced with external enemies. And as we open our way, or open up to 2 Samuel chapter 14 this morning, we see that this is a kingdom that is on the verge of ruin. It's on the verge of ruin. The text opens with Joab's scheme for Absalom's return in verses 1 through 24. Joab schemes to get Absalom back. Absalom is living in exile at this point, self-imposed exile for the last three years. Let's pick up in verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew the king's, that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner. And put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. If you've been following along with us over first and second Samuel, you've seen Joab a number of times. These verses should not surprise us if we are familiar with Joab. Joab is David's nephew. He's also Joab's, or excuse me, David's army commander. But more than that, he was someone who seemed to think that he knew what needed to be done and would always take it upon himself to do what needed to be done. And so we look in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, and there is this peace being brokered between David and the, the rest of Israel, and Joab doesn't believe that this peace will actually last, and so he murders Abner, the leader of the peace movement. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David sends word to Joab saying, hey, I need you to put Uriah in this place where he will die, and, and Joab doesn't ask questions. He just does what David asks because he's a good soldier who follows orders. He does what needs to be done. We see this from his brother earlier, actually, in 1 Samuel chapter 26. David is on the run from the previous king, from King Saul, and Joab's brother asks David at one point, hey, Saul's right over there. You want me to sneak over and kill him? Joab is a man who sees what needs to be done and does it no matter the cost. And here we get a little bit of insight into Joab because Joab seems to, to understand what's happening within David's own heart. Verse 1 is a very crucial verse, an important verse for understanding how to read this chapter. Three years have passed since Absalom murdered his brother and then fled to Geshur, this, uh, this nation surrounding Israel. And at face value, as we look at verse 1, it seems to suggest to us that in this moment, David longs for his son to return. Joab has, has seen David for these past three years, and David is wishing that his son would come back to him. And that's what the phrase, heart goes out, in English means, right? When we see someone suffering, 
and our heart goes out to them. This is an idiom that means something like, I wish I could do something about the plight that is facing them. But the Hebrew here is, is intentionally ambiguous. What exactly is taking place? The CSB, another translation that we use actually in our kids' ministry, I, I think it gets this a little bit more accurately of, of what's taking place here. That catches the ambiguity. It says this, Joab, son of Zeruiah, realized that the king's mind was on Absalom. Verse 1 is saying something like, Absalom consumed David's thoughts. It could be good, could be bad. It's very neutral sounding here. David's thoughts are consumed with the matter of his son. But we have to ask, is this for good or for bad? What does David want here? In the context of 2 Samuel chapter 14, when Joab takes it upon himself to create this elaborate plan to convince David to bring Absalom back, the context makes it relatively clear. David's thoughts are consumed with Absalom, but they aren't consumed with goodwill for his son. David has no interest in reconciling with his son here. This view is actually strengthened by another verse, verse 20, and I know we're getting ahead of ourselves. But the woman from Tekoa reveals why Joab sends her to David. I, I, I think this is helpful for understanding the specifics of this chapter, so bear with me. It says this in verse 20, In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. So in other words, Joab is scheming because he believes he sees something out on the horizon that needs to be prevented, that, that danger is lurking, and something has to change. He sees that there's this animosity between David and his son Absalom, and if it's not addressed, then disaster is going to strike. And again, this, this makes sense in the context, right? David is getting older. And as he gets older, the time to think about an heir, time to think about succession is becoming more and more pressing. Absalom is the next one in line for the throne, and yet David is hostile to him. What if David dies? Civil war will break out. So this is what Joab is thinking at this moment. Joab seems to perceive that the issue here isn't primarily about David and his family, but it's for the entire kingdom. That's Joab's concern here. That's what actually verse 13 suggests. And I know, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but the crux of this woman's argument fed to her by Joab is that David's actions towards his son by leaving him in exile will not just destroy David's family, but will have massive ramifications for the people of God. That's what we see in verse 13. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, Why are you ruining your family? Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. So even here as we start, we have to understand that Joab's concern, by extension, the concern of this chapter 
is not so much about David's family, but it's about the future security of the people of God. That David's sin years earlier with Bathsheba and with Uriah is still affecting things. And the question we're left wondering is, what will this do for the people of God? Joab seems to think that he sees something off in the distance that no one else can see. And in order to prevent a disaster, he schemes. To prevent a civil war, he schemes. And so he recruits a woman from a town about 10 miles away from Jerusalem and brings her into this scheme to act as though disaster has struck her family. We, as the reader, are given insight that David does not have. This is just a made-up story, but it's a very elaborate made-up story. Picking up in verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave, me, to, leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Don't get caught up in the details. The woman's made-up story here is clear. Her two sons that get into an argument leading to the death of one of the sons. In those days, if someone was killed, it was custom for a family member, whether close or distant, to serve as what was called the avenger of blood. This is how you would enact justice in those days. They would seek out the killer and put them to death as a form of justice. And apparently here, that's what's taking place. The clan, these distant relatives, are intent on putting her son to death in accordance with this law. But that's not all. This woman's husband is also dead, meaning that this son, this killer is her last living relative. And so if her son was put to death, she will lose the only person who will take care of her, and all of her possessions will go to the clan. So you're picking up on some mixed motives here from the clan, right? Let's continue in verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. I want to pause there. Ask yourself, what are the orders that David is going to give? That's what the woman is thinking at this point. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let my king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed." He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. This back and forth is really important here between David and this woman. First, David responds, I'll take care of it. And the woman's left wondering, well, what exactly are you going to do? That's not good enough for me. And so she presses David. And David responds again with an answer that isn't good enough for her. He says, I'll make sure that you are taken care of. And, and her response is basically, well, what, what about my son? That's why I came to you. 
And so she asks David to invoke the name of the Lord, take this oath that he will protect her son. And David does exactly that. And that leads to this woman revealing her trap. Verse 12. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Notice what's taking place here. The woman confronts David and says, if you are willing to protect my son from judgment, why are you unwilling to do the same thing for your son? Remember what we saw in verse 13 earlier. Verse 13 makes it very clear that this is not primarily a family issue. It is a national one. The woman and Joab are claiming that David's inaction toward Absalom is going to put the entire nation, the people of God, at risk. David is not like the woman who he is sided with in judgment, but by leaving Absalom in exile, he's like the clan leaders, and he convicts himself. That's the woman's claim. Verse 15. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the men who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And the servant and your servant thought the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest for my Lord. The king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God be with you. These verses kind of make me smile because there's a whole lot of fluff there from the woman, a whole lot of flattery. And it, and it makes sense. If you're going before the king and you just accuse the king of doing something terrible, you're going to back it off with some flattery, right? What's more, she actually goes back to her made-up story and claims, like, that's what I was talking about the whole time. That's why I really wanted to come and talk to you. It wasn't so much about your son Absalom. That was just a, 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 you know, a coincidence. I, I saw this and figured I should mention it. Now let me go back to my main point, which wasn't actually her main point. David isn't fooled. Verse 18. Then the, the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this, but my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Again, a lot of fluff there. And I'm, please don't take that as me criticizing the scriptures. I think this is actually evidence that this took place, that is recording what the woman actually said. David asked the woman, was this all Joab's idea? And she, she confesses, yes, it was. She's nervous about what is taking place here. She's confronted the king. And the question that is left is, what will David do at this point? Verse 21 
Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. So Joab here, he's close to David's conversation with this woman. And so David sends for him, brings him in. David grants his request, says, you know what, if, if this is what you're doing, go ahead, go to Gesher, go ahead and get Absalom, bring him back home. And that's exactly what Joab does. And Joab in this moment must be absolutely ecstatic because he saw David's animosity He knew it needed to be addressed before civil war breaks out. And yet he, Joab, steps in to save the day. He does what needs to be done. The crisis is averted. The kingdom is saved. And everyone lives happily ever after. Or not. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. When Joab and Absalom returned from Geshur, they were not welcomed with a party to bring the banished home. Instead, Absalom is met with a form of house arrest. David would not allow, or David would allow his son to return, but he would not allow him to come into his presence. He refuses to speak to him. Joab, for all of his scheming, has failed. One good scheme deserves another, or something like that, and so that's what the second half of the chapter is about. After Joab's scheme to get Absalom back into David's good graces fails, two years pass. Now we turn our attention to the second scheme of the chapter, Absalom's scheme for full restoration in verses 25 through 33. But before we get to that, the text starts with a description of Absalom himself. Now in all Israel, there was not one so, uh, so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed his hair, the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. These verses seem to come out of nowhere, don't they? Like, what, what's going on here? Why are we, if you, were to, if you were to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 14 and you went from verse, what, what is it, verse 24 right to verse 28, it would read seamlessly. So what is going on with these verses? Well, this is the first description that we have of Absalom in the book of 2 Samuel, and they serve a pur- an important purpose in the narrative. What do they focus on? They focus on his beauty. How amazing this man looks. He's apparently the best looking guy in Israel. He's a head turner. He walks by and people can't stop or can't help themselves but look at him. 
The text tells us that if you were to look at him, you wouldn't find anything wrong with him from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Last night, or yesterday, I was sitting with my kids. We were, I think, watching some college football, and I blinked, and my son said, hey, Dad, what's that on your face? And I don't know what it was. It was some blemish, clearly. And I said, don't worry, bud. I'm not Absalom. I never claimed to be Absalom here. I cannot relate to Absalom as he is described here. Speaking of the top of his head, though, that's how the text ends. You speak at the top of his head. I mean, the, the text goes on and on about his hair. My goodness, his hair is to die for. It's so lush and full that when he cuts it, and by the way, he cuts it only once a year. You talk about vanity. He holds a special ceremony once a year to cut his hair. And his hair is so magnificent, it's so beautiful, that that the text tells us it weighs somewhere between two and five pounds. And even if this is hyperbole, and I, I think it probably is, the point is clear. Absalom is unmatched in his beauty. Or is he? And his name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Absalom is described this way to remind us of Saul. Two generations earlier, the first king of Israel. And we all saw how that worked out, right? He was the type of king that the people longed for. They clamored for. They wanted a king like Saul. But he was a far cry from the type of king that they actually needed. The description of Absalom in these verses, not just his physical appearance, but the mention of his descendants, Right here, they describe him as the ideal king. And you can probably pick up what's going to happen in the next few verses, that Absalom's going to make a play for the throne. Why wouldn't he? He's the ideal king, at least according to the world's standards. It's a not-so-subtle reminder to us that God's kingdom doesn't have the same priorities as worldly kingdoms. Let's keep reading. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine and he is barley there. Go and set it on fire. What a nice neighbor. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here that I may send you back or send you to the king to ask, Why have I come to Gesher or from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. For two years, Absalom has lived in Jerusalem in isolation. And from Absalom's perspective, I get this. 
being in exile in Jerusalem is worse than exile in Gesher. While he's in exile in Gesher, there's at least some nobility that he can take pride in the fact that he's the, the grandson of the king. And yet here in Jerusalem, he might be the son of the king, but the, the king wants nothing to do with him. And so Absalom is sick of waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting. When is this going to end? And so he, he goes to Joab. After all, Joab's the one who brought him back from Gesher. So he reaches out and says, you know what, Absalom, or excuse me, Joab, you, you helped me once. Can you help me again? And yet Joab has apparently had a change of heart. Maybe he's beginning to realize, uh-oh, I shouldn't have invited this guy back. Things aren't all that good. And so he refuses Absalom's summons once and twice, and then Absalom burns down his field in order to talk to him. If you want to get your neighbor's attention, do not follow the advice of this text. Notice Absalom's words in verse 32. He wants Joab to get him an audience with the king. And notice what the text says. The text doesn't say, my father. It says the king. Again, more evidence. This chapter is primarily concerned with the kingdom, not with David's family. Absalom wants to settle this matter once and for all. David, you're going to have to act. Enough of this in-between. If I'm deserving of death, put me to death. Otherwise, pardon me. Stop shunning me. Either kill me or welcome me back. Joab seems to agree. Verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Joab does exactly what Absalom asks. He goes to David, convinces David to publicly acknowledge Absalom as his son and as his heir once more, and that's exactly what David does. And yet, it's hard not to miss. Excuse me, it's just hard to miss how like, dispassionate this scene is, right? How stiff it is. There's more of the king language, not my father. He came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This isn't family reconciliation. This is a public ceremony. And yet the crisis in Israel seems to be officially over from the outside. The king and his heir have been reconciled, and yet the relationship between David and Absalom is as rocky as ever. And this is, of course, what will play out over the next few chapters. 2 Samuel chapter 15, 16, 17, 18 tell us of Absalom's rebellion, his seizure of the throne. And I, I got to say, there's some definite irony here in this passage. This chapter starts with Joab's desire to prevent this civil war in Israel, and yet he inadvertently does the things that lead to Absalom having the platform to rebel against his father. Here is Joab. He's trying to save David's kingdom and he almost brings about its destruction. And there's probably a lesson there. 
about using worldly means to accomplish God's purposes, but that's not what this text is primarily about. So we might ask ourselves, as we did at the beginning, what is going on in this chapter? Well, I want you to imagine if you had to choose between the two kings here, David and Absalom, who would you prefer to have as your king? You read this chapter, who would you choose? Let's start with Absalom. Absalom here opens with him in exile. Why? Well, because he murdered his brother. And as much as he might think he's justified, David and 2 Samuel make it very clear that he wasn't justified. It was murder. And as the text continues, we're told that he's beautiful, which draws a comparison to Saul, the rejected king who wanted nothing to do with God. And he's ruthless. He burns down his neighbor's field in order to get what he wants. Is this the type of king that God desires? Is this the type of king that we need? Of course, the alternative, David, is not much better. You look at David here, just like we saw with David last week, David is marked with inaction. He doesn't do much of anything. In fact, by the end of the conversation with the woman at, uh, of Tekoa, did you catch this? He, the king, is asking this woman for permission to speak. That's what we see in verse 18. It's a reversal of the roles. And when he is forced to reconcile with his son, he only does it as a ceremony. There's no heart behind it. You know, when we consider the multiple failures of both David and Absalom in this passage, we, we, we're just left wondering, oh my goodness, how, how different is David's kingdom than the kingdom of God? You know, in a way, the events of 2 Samuel 14, they're a twisted version of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You might be familiar with this story. Jesus tells this story about a man who has two sons, one of whom asks for all of his inheritance, and he runs away to a far country. And while he's there, he wastes his inheritance on reckless living, on prostitutes, partying, you name it. And he ends up broke, and he eventually comes to his senses and decides to return home and ask his father to serve him as a slave. And so he sets off to return home and he's rehearsing his story of how he's just going to get his foot in the door with his dad the entire way home. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
Do you catch the sobering difference here between the sons of 2 Samuel 14 and Luke 15? In 2 Samuel 14, the son comes home, but he shows no remorse over what he has done. In fact, he, he makes demands to be fully restored to his father, the king. In contrast, Luke 15 tells us of a son full of remorse, torn up over what he has done. He cannot fathom being welcomed back into his father's family, so he's just going to accept the position of a slave. The contrast between the two fathers in 2 Samuel 14 and Luke 15 is even more extreme. In 2 Samuel 14, David begrudgingly allows his son to return, and yet for two full years... The Hebrew there, when it's talking about the two years, I think it's in verse 28, is literally two years of days. Every single day was a knife twist to Absalom that his father would not welcome him back. And you get to the end in verse 33, and there's a kiss but it's perfunctory. It's a part of a ceremony to acknowledge that his son has been pardoned. How different is the father of Luke 15? This father does not shun his son for two years. He's watching and waiting for him. When he sees him, he runs to meet him. Their meeting takes place in the middle of the road. Immediately, he welcomes his son back into his family. The, the kiss of the father in Luke 15 is genuine and full of love. Here is a father, in spite of all that his son has done, welcomes him back with open arms because he loves him. You know, the past few weeks as we've been working our way through 2 Samuel, we've seen the dark side of David's reign. We've seen a man and a kingdom that are a shell of, once, of what they once were. And each of these chapters that we've looked at, 2 Samuel 11, 12, 13, filled, they're, they're horrific. They're filled with adultery and rape and murder. And yet I think here in this chapter, we see specifically in the context, in the, the contrast here between David and the father of Luke 15, we get the clearest picture of just how broken David's kingdom really is. How spiritually bankrupt David's kingdom is. It is on the verge of ruin. And yet here's the amazing thing about this text. When we read 2 Samuel 14 in the broader context of the rest of the Bible, this chapter about a kingdom that is on the verge of ruin points us to a beautiful, eternal, fully secure, fully just, fully merciful kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. 2 Samuel 14 reveals just how precarious David's kingdom really is. Joab can see it, and in trying to fix it, Joab almost ruins it. And, and what we see is true of David's kingdom here is honestly true of every earthly kingdom. Just how precarious they may be. It may be tomorrow it may be a hundred years. It might even last a little bit longer than that. But every kingdom will fail. 
from the perspective of eternity, every kingdom is on the verge of ruin. It's only a few steps away from ruin. How great is our assurance concerning the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Here's the message that we must let sink into our hearts from this text, unlike the kingdoms of the world. Just fill in your blank of whatever kingdom. Unlike all of the kingdoms that have ever been, are now and will ever be, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is eternally secure. If you, like the prodigal son, have come to the Father, there is good news. All your plans to prove yourself to Him are unnecessary. In fact, they just get in the way. Do you notice the father in Luke 15 cuts off his son before he says, let me work as your slave? That's not necessary with this God. He welcomes you as a son or daughter. The father, in spite of all that you have done, will gladly welcome you into his family. And if you're a part of this family, he will never cast you out. Your place in his kingdom is eternally secure. The Lord Jesus has made sure of that. This is a kingdom of justice, yes. Our king paid for our entrance into his kingdom with his own death. But this kingdom is also a kingdom of unfathomable mercy that you and me, people like us, are welcomed into his family and into his kingdom forever. I love the way Paul puts it at the beginning of Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through the work of Jesus, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and are now forever in the kingdom of the son. And this kingdom will endure forever. Can you imagine it? that there will never be a day when this kingdom is not. That this kingdom will never cease to exist. There will never be a succession plan. There will never be a, a wonder of, well, who's going to come next? Is, is, is that going to be a good leader, a good ruler? For the Lord will reign forever and ever. The author of Hebrews looks at this, reminds us of this truth, that our, king, our king's kingdom is unending as a source of incredible assurance. He puts it this way, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Unlike the kingdoms of this world, unlike David's kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is eternally secure. Therefore, therefore, let us be a people who respond with worship. Let us be a people who respond to this great news of a great kingdom that includes us, if we belong to Christ, with joy and adoration and thanksgiving. 2 Samuel 14 is a sobering story of a kingdom that is on the verge of ruin, but it also points us to a better kingdom, the kingdom 
that belongs to the Lord Jesus. Have you made that kingdom your home? Have you come to the Father? Have you declared your allegiance to the true king, the king who will reign forever and ever without end? The kingdoms of this world will fall, but his kingdom will endure forever. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great confidence we can have in the kingdom of your Son, your beloved Son. Jesus, we thank you that you reign and you rule and one day you will establish your kingdom in its fullness here on this earth forevermore. And so we join our voices with the church throughout the ages and across the world saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.